I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I am so happy to be speaking today with my very good friend, Ethan Nickturn. Ethan is a second-generation meditation teacher and the author of several books, including his brand-new release, The Dharma of the Princess Bride, which comes out on September 12, 2017. For the past 15 years, Ethan has taught meditation and Buddhist psychology classes and workshops around New York City and North America and Europe. He primarily studies in the Shambhala tradition under Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, but has also studied Theravadan and Soto Zen Buddhism. Ethan is a Shastri, a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, and currently he's senior teacher in residence for the Shambhala New York City community. Welcome, Ethan. So somebody was just asking me when we met. Do you remember? <laughs> I don't remember. I've always known you, Ethan. I don't. I don't. I don't remember exactly when we met. But um, it's been. It's been, we've been close for a while now. Yes. It's great to really great to have you as a mentor, teacher, friend, a wedding officiant. Yes. <laughs> that was secret, Ethan. <laughs> Never mind. It's in the book. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> I must have missed that. <laughs> Um, I remember uh, your dad asking me to teach um, for you at the Interdependence Project. And then you and I became such good friends. I see you much more often than I see your yeah. dad. You know? Well, when I, when was IDP getting going? 2006, 2007. So it's been the last last 10 years. Yeah, yeah, I like see it. you more often than I see my dad, too, <laughs> I think. That's great. He's a world traveler. <laughs> so I am so excited about your new book. I have to confess... I've only seen uh, a little bit of the movie, The Princess Bride, and I, I s- turned it on this friend's Netflix um, when I was out in California because of your book. So um, still, you know, I think I got the, <laughs> I hope I got the thesis of it. Um, can you tell everyone a little bit about the book and the history of the film in your life? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, for for people who love The Princess Bride, which is most people, not to not to... Uh, you know, exclude you. But um, I think the references to The Princess Bride um, really helped the book, but it's not really about The Princess Bride. It's about 
studying Buddhism, meditating, trying to figure out relationships in an era of pop culture. And for that reason, The Princess Bride as a sort of uh, very contemporary fairy tale um, plays a really dominant role. So, I mean, let's see. The, the book came from, I wanted to write about relationships, but I really didn't want to write and, and struggling with relationships as a meditator and Buddhist practitioner. But I didn't want to write from the perspective of being a relationship expert. Um, that's actually one of the main themes of the book that, you know, there are great guides to help us with relationships, but the term itself, relationship actually means at least two people and expert is one lone person. So it's actually an oxymoron. And, um, so I wanted to find a way that could write about, uh, relationships with, um, more transparency, um, and more sort of personal, uh, story and also, um, I think I really wanted to honor popular culture's role in a modern spiritual practitioner's life. Um, and I remember that part came out of uh, my first publisher, um, Wisdom Publications, which published uh, my first book, One City. Uh, I remember that they had published a book called The Dharma of Star Wars, um, which is more kind of, it's a, it's a really cool book, but it's kind of a... Uh, analysis of the Jedi code mm-hmm, from a Buddhist mm-hmm. perspective. And I remember seeing that and saying, if I ever do something like that, it's going to be uh, about the Princess Bride. And so this idea kind of came together to, uh, you know, then I started looking at when the Princess Bride came out. I was talking to my friend and agent, Lisa Weinert, and, you know, she said, well, when did uh, when did the movie come out? And she was thinking about more from like an anniversary kind of like when is a good time to write about this. And it turned out it came out in the fall of 1987. So we're coming up on the 30th anniversary, September 25th. And I just looked back um, at um, sort of where my life was. And that was, you know, fourth grade, which is exactly the age almost of the grandson, Fred Savage, in the movie. And that was a crazy, crazy year in the life of my formative family relationships. That was the year my parents, Buddhist teacher Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, passed away, passed away very early a really um, pretty difficult event for both my parents and a lot of their friends. Um, that was the year uh, my grandfather and his wife committed double suicide. That was the year my parents uh, split up. So there was this real sort of uh, beloved fairy tale um, coming into my life at the same time that my life as a sort of formative child was really hard and everything sort of dovetailed when I started writing. So it turned out to be, you know, a a kind of let's look at 30 years of trying to study uh, and practice meditation and Buddhism, Um, 30 years of uh, loving this pop culture classic, The Princess Bride, and and 30 years trying to be in relationships, friendship, romance, and family. So um, it's kind of a cocktail, you know, uh, of different, and I think... The early reviews, people have said it works really well as sort of this cross-narrative. You mm-hmm. know, I, um, it was just the kind of book that felt right to write. And, um, yeah, so that's um, that's where that came from. Yeah, no, I was going to ask about that year because, I mean, what a traumatic and unbelievable kind of year. I mean, any one of those things, of course, is a major upheaval. And Yeah, 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 and was having a hard time in school, too. So it was just, you know... Um, I. I don't even remember completely loving The Princess Bride that year. The, the reason I went to see it is that my father's best friend, when he was growing up, was in the movie. He was the actor Christopher Guest, who, who plays one of the bad guys in the movie, the six-fingered uh, man. And uh, so it was kind of this... Um, I had never read the book, The Princess Bride. It was kind of this relief. And as a nine-year-old, you can tell, like, this is a weird fairy tale, Um but it was just, I think, provided a little bit of relief. And as the years have gone by, I think one of the reasons... The the movie didn't actually do that well in the cinema. It was like 41st at the box office that year, but um, 538.com recently did a survey of the 25 most rewatchable movies of all time, and Princess Bride is number six. So it's literally like in in American people's minds. It's the right, sixth right. Most, most memorable movie that you would want to watch again. Actually, even just the, when you say uh, you were nine, I was nine when my mother died, and mm. that the little kid was nine mm. in the in the film or around that age. So yeah. I remember just the, the fraction of the movie that I saw, just the, 
the tenderness of that relationship, how yeah. his, his grandfather, right, like yes. hangs in there even no matter what the kid throws up in his face, you know? Yeah. like. So it's a real lineage moment, too. That's the other yeah. thing about the setup is it's this wacky, deconstructed fairy tale that the grandfather's telling his grandson, but that just felt like another really strong connection because my father always refers to Chogim Trungpa as his spiritual father, mm-hmm. so kind of playing on that notion of, uh, a lost grandfather, even though he was probably too young to be my grandfather. And then, you know, my grandpa Saul uh, committing suicide that year. There, there's um, uh, a real sense of that that connection to one's lineage in that yeah. sense. And yeah. I think Princess Bride is kind of there's a lin- there's a lineage transmission to put it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put his terms going on in the storytelling. Yeah. So is there is there some I don't know is there like one character was it the kid or is there is there something that resonates the most for you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in each of the three sections of the book, there's sort of a drawing on one of the um, relationships, like um, in this first section, which is on friendship, the the relationship between um, Andre the Giant's really sweet, uh, kind of idyllic bodhisattva, generous friendship character of Fezzik and uh, Mandy Patinkin's Inigo Montoya, their mm-hmm. sort of friendship and how they help each other and then help the star of the movie, Wesley. Um, that was pretty dominant in in the second part of the movie about um, sort of working, uh, sorry, the second part of the book about working with romance and dating, romantic partnership, marriage, sort of the Wesley and Buttercup um, characters really became prominent. And then in the third part of the book, it's all about the grandfather and grandson and mm-hmm. just thinking about family lineage and you know, the other thing I was thinking about, which gets into the conclusion about being nine years old, is there's a really famous story. Uh, it's actually not as famous as I wish it were in the life of the Buddha when he's a few months shy of his awakening and he's uh, left his ascetic life mm-hmm. behind and he has this sudden recollection of being nine nine years old. Actually, I don't think the sutta actually says what age he is, but Thich Nhat Hanh mm-hmm, says he was mm-hmm. nine years old and um, sitting in the fields um, next to his father's estates, watching them plow the fields and just feeling spontaneously innocent and awake and mm-hmm. uh, liberated and using that sort of positive nostalgia of a of a positive memory of just being who he was uh, as a kind of final... Um, almost visualization for his final awakening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So nine years old is a yeah, pretty important it's a big age. Thing. <laughs> yeah, actually in the Theravada, in the Burmese um, forms of Buddhism, uh, the the Buddha then known as the Bodhisattva because he had not yet attained Buddhahood, um, has that recollection in the form of a dream. He's, he, he dreams it. And Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist, got really excited <laughs> because it's a dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there aren't many <laughs> dreams to, to be analyzed <laughs> in, in the tradition. But um, it's quite a moment. You know, there's a moment of release. There's a moment of um, not trying so hard and also not, uh, there's no pretense there. You know, he's a kid remembering, he's remembering being a kid without the need to sort of impress anybody mm-hmm. or, you know fulfill a role or or something like that and so uh there's a lot about that age yeah yeah i also think it's you know in terms of if you think of kind of the nature of mind as just this kind of i mean we think of it it's hard to describe what awakening actually feels like people always want to know and a lot of times in classic buddhism it's described as the absence of a problem you know, and they lay out the problems that are no longer there. And I always thought it was interesting that, you know, the word nirvana or nibbana literally means to extinguish. Mm-hmm. So the word actually means the opposite of enlightenment, which I always thought was right. kind oh, of... Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is interesting. So to frame it as like, what is the state of um, awakening or aliveness, you know, uh, um, my teacher, Sakami Paramahamsa, talks a lot about a sense of worthiness uh-huh. and... Um, I really think about a sense of innocence, like fundamentally there's no wrongdoing and you can just be and connect with others. And um, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, that, that notion of um, being nine is just this interesting moment. And actually, you know, often uh, thinking about this right now, because I have a seven-week-old daughter at the time that we're talking about this, like 
fourth grade for me was this time where like you're no longer the cute kid you know you're people aren't just posting photos of their nine-year-old being like oh my god they're so cute but you're also not quite a responsible um tween or mm-hmm. teen or grown-up yet and so that sort of in-between phase of like you're not innocent but you're not <laughs> uh, burdened yet is an interesting sort of um transitional moment so i guess a, a more cynical part of me would say it's one thing to experience that innocence and that kind of um, uh, non-constructed persona, you know, that incredible authenticity of being (laughs) sitting under a tree by yourself. (laughs) But what about being in a relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about, I remember um, one time Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, who's also a Soto, uh, I don't think he's a a Zen um, practitioner, he said there was um, a... uh, uh, a slogan in certain Zen traditions that if you want to know if a master is enlightened, ask their spouse, uh, ask his wife, but to degender it, ask their spouse. So that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting, you know, if you want to know if a person's awake, ask their friends, ask their students, ask the people who are close. And so I think that's the interesting thing because I think there's a lot of myths. Uh, and that was the other thing about this book. I really, with no such thing as a relationship expert, you know, I think there's a lot of Eastern myths about relationships that if you've sat in a cave for 12 years, you must be great at, um, you know, uh, friendship or political disagreement or Thanksgiving with your family, mm-hmm. you know, or fights with your romantic partner. And, um, you know, I, I also think that there's kind of Western myths, but the, the notion of um, innocence as a, a space of not knowing and actually being open to saying, like, what? how are we going to connect together? And there's lots, that's the thing about Buddhism, is there is very little specific advice in classic Buddhism mm-hmm. about, like, let's say a second date isn't going well, and you want to let the other person down compassionately. There's no specific instruction for how to do that, right? Um, there's no specific instruction in, uh, about how to get divorced compassionately. Mm-hmm. But there's so many um, great teachings about how to hold one's mind and heart open in a, in a space that's not causing more harm and is maybe mm-hmm. more generous. And But it's the really sticky part of practice. And I think that's why, even for the Buddha, you know, I say this somewhat blasphemously but hopefully lovingly mm-hmm. in the book that the Buddha was a deadbeat dad, you know. Mm-hmm. And you could, certain authors um, in describing his life have tried to give him sort of like this superhuman mythic um, being that, like, he saw the way forward and, you know, family was not it. But he was 29 years old, so in astrological terms, that's Saturn Returns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he had a six-month-old, and I know having a baby can be, what do I do, you know? And um, I just imagine, what if the Buddha had a panic attack? You know, that's obviously not the way the story's told, and there's nothing in the uh, sutras to say that that's what happened, but it's more humanizing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more humanizing, um, you know, the, the famous story of the probably the most famous teacher in my tradition, uh, Acharya Pema Chodron, you know, talking about finding out her husband was cheating on her and throwing rocks at him, mm-hmm. you know. So that sort of how do we actually notice our shortcomings and then really mm-hmm. show up? And and there aren't really, I mean, there are great people in relationships who are masters of the tradition, but it's something I think we each have to be willing to practice. And we also have to share our own process. That's the thing, the other part of the book that feels important to me, especially with what's going on in some meditation communities that, um, you know, as a teacher, as well as as a practitioner, I felt like, it's really important to be transparent, not to be exhibitionist about one's own journey with mm-hmm. these things, but to be um, transparent about, like, so you you don't think that there's a kind of superhuman quality going on. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go on, just in terms of the term deadbeat, yeah, I mean, he, he didn't leave his wife and child <laughs> on the streets. <laughs> Let's say he left them in the palace <laughs> with the king and the, you know, the queen right. and the... Large extended family. I mean, just that part. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, wanna, yeah. You know. I'm okay. So, so if uh, if the term deadbeat means you have to 
<clears throat> leave them broke than that. <laughs> but I just meant he he left them without a father and a husband. You yes, know? and he definitely yes. made that. That that is true. And it, but it is interesting. Like uh, t- in Thich Nhat Hanh's version of the life of the Buddha, he goes to extensive, uh, you know, to to explain that it's actually the Buddha's narcissistic father who he's running away from, and that his wife fully supported that he wanted a spiritual life and. So it's just a version of storytelling without a freak out. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting what those versions of stories do. You know, they give us sort of these these myths to yes, worship. Right. And, yeah. and it's sort of like, well, how do I connect with that? Because we really connect more with the struggle, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, there are, like in, in my Buddhist tradition, there are archetypes for um, beings you know, bodhisattvas or yidams that you focus on in meditation who represent the part of our mind or heart that's never been confused, um, that hasn't gone through a struggle, that's always been pristine and worthy and innocent and awake. Um, But humans really represent a kind of struggle, and I think particularly a struggle with relationships. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, then there's the Western side of this, which is why I wanted to bring the Princess Bride in, is... Um, the the Western um, side of this is the kind of rom-com myth that there's a perfect status-building partner and perfect set of friends and perfect life and you'll get the perfect job and it'll all come together and all your relationships will be in just this beautiful space and then roll credits. And I think The Princess Bride, because it makes the object of romantic affection named Buttercup, which is so mm-hmm. ridiculous, <laughs> um, it does a pretty good job of undercutting a lot of uh, classic fairy tales, and but it does it in this really interesting way, which I think is particularly Buddhist, which is it cuts through a classic sort of mythical narrative, but it doesn't do it just to leave you hopeless or um, feeling nihilistic or feeling cynical about relationships, mm-hmm. it's, which like is a little bit more in the Game of Thrones end of the spectrum. It's just like, who, who's the good guy here, you know? Actually, I don't know. I've never seen that either. <laughs> well, sorry, it's okay. My, I, as your, as someone, as a student and friend, I think it might be a little too violent for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a, a quality of um, optimism. It's mm-hmm. all it's a deconstruction in the service of true love. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of I was talking to a friend, and I was like, "That's what we need more of is optimistic or loving deconstructions in mm-hmm. the contemporary era." And he was like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that." And that's what I think the Princess Bride is. And, and you know, I do think there's a lot of myths about relationships. So getting into that playful space where a personal practice and pop culture are kind of convening, that, that felt like a very fruitful place to, to write from, especially when I figured out sort of where I actually was the first time I saw the Princess Bride, which I had forgotten. And then the whole thing uh-huh. came together. Where were you? I mean... Oh, uh, the year? The year, yeah yeah, 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 where I was in life. Yeah. So I have a funny question to ask you based on something you just said. As you know, I have a book that just came out called Real Love. Yeah. Which, um, thank you, which was not a title I chose, but was fine. Do you think, I mean, and when you said true love just now, I thought, oh, that that's kind of, that evokes a different feeling. And it made me like real love all the more, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so true love is in, in, um, the Princess Bride, true love. Obviously, true love sounds like the rom-com myth. It's the romantic version of it, which obviously real love is about. It's interesting how many different kinds and approaches to love you you kind of got into that um, book. So, true love is definitely coming from this sort of fairy tale place of romantic, you know, Prince Charming, um, etc. Um, even though it's Princess Buttercup in this case. Um, and I think that's what they're they're playing with. What's interesting is in The Princess Bride, what it really ends up being about, there's this notion of devotion in true love, which is uh, sort of drawn out by this very famous phrase in the movie, as you wish, that that's the activity of devotion, as you just say, as you wish to your true love. But then it's, it flips that... Um, uh, the actual um, meaning of true love is between the grandfather and the grandson yeah. because the yeah. movie ends with the grandfather saying, as you wish. And um, so I think they're playing with, and I, I think it's also like tantric Buddhism, the tradition that I primarily practice, there is this notion of 
finding that line between devotional longing and yearning and almost erotic affection and then how that could open you up to um, true love for everyone. But uh, yeah, I think uh, true love works in The Princess Bride just because it's such a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think real love, you know, I I think that's the other thing. I think the reason I like the word real um, is that there's, there's a kind of authenticity and that's mm-hmm. sort of where our world is at. Like, let can we just get real? Can we, you know, can we drop all the garbage and just like tell me what's really going on mm-hmm. for you? What's mm-hmm. really going on here? And um, it's it's a good time for us to get real because we got we got a lot of problems, you know. Yeah. The city of as we talk, the city of Houston is under underwater, underwater right now with two more feet of rain expected. I know, and I, you know, because I was traveling and I I was. Uh, reading all the news on Twitter, as I do. And then, you know, I, I saw the, the hurricane getting downgraded, and I thought, oh, great, you know, mm. that I felt such a sense of relief. And then all of a sudden, it was awful enough, you know, yeah. with just being a tropical storm. I mean, truly awful. And, um, you know, I mean, the this recent period started out with me writing to everyone I knew in Charlottesville, which is quite mm-hmm. a number of people, yeah. you know, and then I was writing to everyone I knew in Houston. And, yeah. You know, it, it's like, it's quite a lot going on. So I'm just, can I ask you, yeah. did you have an original title for the book that then got uh, edited? Uh, or? Not, not, I don't think for this one. Um, you know, it was, it was more just, oh yeah, that, that's what it'll be called. There was right. some uh, changes around the subtitle. The, the actual title is Real Love, um, The Art of Mindful Connection, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, the word mindful was not in there to begin with. Mm-hmm. It was authentic, actually. Mm. Uh, but somehow mindful snuck its way back in. Gotcha. <laughs> And that became the subtitle. Um, and it's confusing, you know. I mm. think also um, I'm very happy about the book, and it's, you know, not just about romantic love, God knows, you know, but uh, I think people sometimes think it will be. Yeah. Um, so the very word love is is quite confusing for us. Yeah. One of the things I, I noticed about real love that I've told you before is that just in terms of this notion of our cultural narrative being so key to any... Um, spiritual path, you know, with my book, I took one um, famous um, cultural narrative in The Princess Bride, but one of the things that really resonated with me about real love is how many different cultural voices you used in quotes and and so forth. So so clearly that seems super important to me, like that our practice happens within this larger... Mm -hmm context of a culture where there's all these ideas and, and practices and art and politics and all of that moving around. So um, I don't think yours was a pop culture book, but mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of cultural voices you brought into talking about, you know, uh, a meditative book on, on real love was, uh, culture is important. Thank you. You know, it was, it was a big effort. So I'm going to actually uh, quote you, okay, okay. <laughs> from the book, um, because Uh, As you keep saying, there's no such thing as a relationship expert, which I completely support. Uh, One of the um, pieces of uh, publicity for my book that I had not seen before it went out, somehow I asked to see it too late. And uh, the first line said something about me, like from the world's foremost authority on love. And Mm. I thought, oh my God. (laughs) So they they were very gracious about changing that. But the first interview that I did, the, the person had that piece of paper mm. in front of them, and they said something like, "How do you get to be a uh, to be the <laughs> not a right. the <laughs> the world?" I said, "Never mind. No one is an expert on love." Right. Um, so here's what you say: Guess what? Everyone is bad at relationships, at least when it comes to making mistakes. In my humble opinion, nobody's great at this dance of desire, love, and humanity. While I might be considered a relative authority on meditation or Buddhist psychology, I'm definitely no master of relationships, and I don't think anyone else is either. So that's a great take on a um, a myth that someone is going to impart the secret to right. oneself, and then and then everything will be fine from then on. No struggle, no difficulty. Right. Just for the disclaimer, I do go on in that passage to say, uh, let me be clear, I'm not saying that that uh, some seeking guidance if you're having a difficult relationship isn't a helpful thing to uh-huh. do. That there are people w- very well trained to help guide relationships and receive feedback and therapy. 
Um, it's just that that's not expertise is the wrong word. Yeah, to I, use. I totally agree. And even just having a um, kind of dispassionate ear, you know, mm-hmm. listening to one's conversation because communication is so challenging. Mm-hmm. And sometimes from the outside, you know, you can just see these two people, whether it's parent and child or siblings or lovers or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. you think, in some way, you're not that far apart, but you can't stand to be in the same room with each other, you know? Like, yeah. Surely there's another way of saying what you want that, right. you know, <laughs> might get you what you want. It's, uh, I mean, especially with, you know, another quote from the book is um, Chogyam Trungpa talking about family. And I, I think in a sense, he's also talking about just our close relationships. Um, but it's it's not a quote I've ever seen written, but four or five of his students have said that he said this, that it's possible you could become enlightened everywhere except around your family. Oh, that's interesting. Here's a quote from you. Uh, when it comes to family, the biggest obstacle facing meditators is the unrealistic expectation that our practice is supposed to make us invincible. We often feel like we should be able to handle anything and everything because we have some relationship with our own minds. Sometimes we think that we should be superheroes when it comes to dealing with difficult circumstances. We should dive into family, and no difficulty should be able to overcome us. Yeah, yeah. And then in in the later chapters on family, I say, like, you could, if you're just starting with meditation, you wouldn't go on a month-long retreat. You'd start with, like, well, I know, I actually do know a few people who that's how they start with meditation, <laughs> but <laughs> wouldn't advise it, right? And And same thing is, like, if you're struggling with a particular family relationship, maybe you could just have a a little bit that but i think a lot of times when we study a lot of times out of context buddhist teachings and mindfulness teachings seem very idealistic about what we're supposed Mm -hmm, to be able mm -hmm. to handle or accommodate and so viewing relationships as a practice as a difficult practice with some of the same parameters of like what does it mean to just show up and practice uh, in a way that's reasonable for you i think is incredibly important and also i mean i'll I'll take back the buddha was a deadbeat (laughs) comment even though it's in a a book that's already been printed um (laughs) but um you know i think there's some assumption uh that so-called spiritual teachers wouldn't be having any of the obstacles we're Mm -hmm. having and Mm -hmm. clearly that's not the case when you get in Mm -hmm. it's really just the, the great masters i think are just the ones who are practicing and have committed mm-hmm. to like i'm going to keep practicing with this and um so i i think that's really important that we take an approach that like this is a pra- all of this is a practice and and relationships can be a really difficult practice mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's hard to let ourselves actually um admit to some of the obstacles we have in relationships you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. i mean i think obviously the you know the myths and the narratives and the the stories of the West about love are very, very difficult. Mm. You know, in some ways, I think love has really gotten degraded in general that we tend to think of it as sentimentality or right. something that will make us weak or, or even stupid rather than seeing it as the force that it is. But something that's great about Western culture um, is that people, I, I find, kind of insist on a real um, integrity to their practice. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want to have some activity they do to feel better in the morning but have a crummy life, you know? Right. They, they actually want that practice to manifest in their relationships and in their livelihood and, you know, all the aspects of their life. And, and that, I think, is a fantastic thing. And Yeah. It's also, you know, it's something, if you look at the progression of, like, for example, the Tibetan tradition, which is the one I'm kind of the most familiar with historically, and then the Shambhala tradition, which comes out of that, you know, there is sort of this progression towards even the notion that a householder at a certain point could be a master. Mm-hmm. And, and But even within some of the stories of, like, ancient Tibetan Buddhism, like, there were householder gurus or masters who, like, like Marpa would be an example, who was a uh, farmer and also was a great translator of Dharma. But even there, it was almost like his farm work and he had a temper and relationship with his wife was almost like, uh, the the way that he prepped for his real Dharma practice, mm-hmm. his real practice. And I think it's evolving, and I, I really like the, the Shambhala term warrior, you mm-hmm. know, which is not only used in Shambhala, but really this notion of uh, a person who's trying to be awake in the world. And I do think we're kind of, in a lot of these different traditions, 
we're in the early phases of a kind of westernized approach to dharma, which I think some purists are saying is not the real thing, but where you're literally saying, okay, I'm going to do my daily meditation practice. I'm going to go, I go on a couple retreats a year, but I'm going to really try to make uh, my life in the world my practice. Mm-hmm. And not as a lesser practice to um, serve the monastic or yogic community that's doing the real practice. There's mm-hmm. a lot of throughout Buddhist history in Asian Buddhism this notion that the lay people are doing just enough so that the 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 real they're the amateurs and the professionals are the people who are really willing to um, go deep. Um, and there's a reason for that. I mean, it's hard to really devote your whole life to meditation practice. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's a beautiful path to say, like, when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm uh, writing, that's my practice. When I'm with my family, that's my practice. Mm-hmm. When I'm mm-hmm. with a stranger, that's my practice. When I'm getting trolled by a Trump supporter on Twitter, even though those numbers seem to be dwindling a little bit, um, that's... Well, isn't it, it's like a whole village in Estonia or something <laughs> making its living by doing that. <laughs> um, so there's, uh, you know, when I'm uh, doing any of this, it's my practice, and it's my not just practice like until I get to the real practice, but this is my means of awakening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really like in the Tibetan Lojong tradition, and I put this in the chapter in the book on dating, um, there's a um, phrase, train without bias in all areas. So there's kind of a more, there's the mm-hmm. possibility of merging in Western mindfulness, Western Buddhism of, and I think it's part of because of where Western culture was and also part of the evolution of mindfulness in Buddhist mm-hmm. thought of this notion of like, maybe in the 22nd century, the really, the people who are considered the awake masters will be more like Renaissance mindfulness practitioners. You know, they have a strong meditation practice, but they're really demonstrating that in multiple areas of life, especially the difficult ones. Mm -hmm. And I think you you don't have to demonstrate mastery in the difficult areas of life. Mm -hmm. I've learned this, you know, more than any other relationship with my relationship uh, with my wife that you just have to demonstrate that you're trying to practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So how many different areas of our life are we trying to turn into a practice based on the principles Mm -hmm. we work with in meditation? Um, that's what I think the, the 21st, 22nd century awakened mm-hmm. masters are going to mm-hmm. look like. Not that we won't have the yogis. or mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm also saying this, the most famous person in my tradition is a nun. So there's right. still that right. tradition right. very strongly. Right. But um, that's what inspires me, at least. So I have one more question about relationships, and then I want to switch topics before we have to, sure. we have to end. So um, in terms of that phrase, as you wish, you know, in yeah. that sense of devotion... Uh, something I was very conscious of in writing my book was um, how many people, most commonly perhaps women, uh, but not only women, um, need the opposite in order to come to a state of balance or authenticity. Mm. Like they, they're always deferring, pretty mm. well always deferring or, or giving in or not even being able to express what they want. I have a story in there about a friend in my book about a friend um, who really outlived her cancer prognosis by like 30 or 40 years or something like that. And uh, she was telling me about when she was first diagnosed and she said she looked at absolutely everything in her life, like everything. Mm. And she said one of the things I saw was that I was the kind of person who'd be sitting in the car with my husband, boiling hot, and the most I could bring myself to say was, are you warm, dear? Mm. (laughs) And she said that had a change, (laughs) you know? So uh, I I admire the beauty of devotion in that sense of as right. you wish. I was really happy. Um, uh, Ethan has a book launch, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, and the RSVP was as you wish, <laughs> which I thought was really cute. Uh, you know, and there's there are ways in which there are times in my life where I feel like that's the, you know, getting into that mode is much more the movement toward authenticity. And then right. there are the opposite times as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, th- those relationships that are, I, I hear the the issue that the um, the uh, and maybe it is there is a gendered thing. I mean, I think we are, uh, and as a as a white heterosexual white male, um, 
need to acknowledge in 2017 that we are still living in a very misogynistic, racist, uh, homophobic society. It would just be silly uh, to not. Yeah. So there might be a gendered thing going on there, but to universalize the the principle, I think you know. Uh, a kind of confused notion of devotion, I think, can lead to kind of what I like to think of as uh, talked about in the road home as doormat compassion. Mm-hmm. That it's just whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want, and that obviously opens the doors for people who don't understand boundaries, do not have generous, you know, are not uh, uh, returning the favor mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. narcissists to literally run the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's what yeah. that opens the door for. So spiritual practitioners have to be the ones to figure out generosity, d- mm-hmm. uh, devotion, um, in a way that uh, equalizes self and other. That's that's the theme that I always liked from um, one of the Tibetan teachings, that the mm-hmm. true bodhisattva equalizes right. self and right. other, right. Um, cares about both. Um, and there's a kind of a balance of the mind's awareness of self mm-hmm. and other. Um, which is really wonderful. Like when you look at um, different cultures that have existed, that notion of like that a person could step onto the subway and equalize self and other. You know, now the Dalai Lama sometimes makes the point, but yeah, but there's more others. So if you're going to equalize the two, <laughs> you're probably going to end up thinking about others a lot. <laughs> but I think in terms of committed devotional relationships, I mean, I think those are rare that there are relationships that you would just immediately say as you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, for me, definitely a guru relationship, you know. If you ask me for anything, I would definitely say as you wish. <laughs> you know, there, so what is it that makes that possible? Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. there's some kind of my wife, I would definitely say as you wish, who has no problem telling me when she's at least physically <laughs> uncomfortable, which is good. Yay. Um, she has, you know, she, she sometimes really takes the burden on in other ways. But yeah. if it's too hot, she'll let me know. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a quality of trust you know, that, that not every um, fight has to be, uh, not every situation has to be a time to either, um, to, to express your needs. Mm-hmm. And so you, you trust that the relationship is going to be open enough and thoughtful enough that in the future you could uh, bring it up again. And um, that does sound like an example of a non-trusting relationship, which I actually talk about trust as a basic practice of friendship in mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. section of the of the book, because I was sort of going with increasing degrees of difficulty almost, the friendship, mm-hmm. romance, and mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's not true for everyone, that that's the degrees of difficulty. But I think mutual trust is so important that mm-hmm. that that... And there's so many different kinds of relationships in terms of friendship, romance, family, where different language is used. You know, you go to different cultures, people could just be like, turn off the damn heat. And it's just viewed as compassionate to yeah. say that, whereas yeah. others, it would be way too forward. But it's a mutual uh, language that's established. Yeah. And I think it's really good to look for those as kind of the most important relationships we have because it allows us to really believe in our own awakened nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're rare, you know, and they have yeah. to be cultivated. Yeah. And um, I do think if you are in a position that is historically um, oppressed in that way, meaning pressed against so that you're not able to equalize self and other with self and mind, uh, assertion is the the way way to go, you know, which is why it's not all lives matter. Yeah. You know, we're not saying all cities matter while Houston is under. Right. Right. Underwater. We're saying Houston matters. What about Northampton, though? What, what <laughs> no one's Nor- talking about Northampton. <laughs> so um, I think it's really, I think that's an important practice for yeah. modern practitioners. And I think it's important for people who are want to be their allies to give space for them to be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to let you yeah. talk. So at this point, I'll stop mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was great. That was excellent. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I face that a lot with my own book, you know, that question a lot with my own yeah. book and, and that sense of, if I talk about love as generosity, well, what about the people who, you know? Yeah. And and so that equalization is really important. I call it mutuality, yeah. you know, but um, all words are a little complex because mm-hmm. mutuality sometimes... I think makes one think of a ledger, you know, like, well, you did three great things for me, you know, so I guess I owe you three, you know, but it's not like that at all. It's right. exactly as you're describing it. So then before, 
um, we end, you know, less people think I'm completely ignorant of popular culture and I live in a little <laughs> box or something. I was totally addicted to the West Wing. So yeah. if I, and I haven't been able to commit again since, you know, <laughs> in quite that wholehearted fashion. So let's talk about politics. Okay. Uh, okay. You are uh, as well known as, as you are um, in terms of Buddhist psychology and meditation. Uh, I think. Uh, your commitment to transformational activism is is uh, even more, you know, the way people would associate. If they heard your name, they'd go, yeah, I read his thing on, you know, mm. something like that. Yeah. Um, I I always have to say that I, I always feel a little sad that I'm considered a politically active Buddhist teacher because I, I always feel like I'm just doing the bare minimum yeah, yeah. of a citizen of democracy and as a person interested in interdependence, a core Buddhist tradition. But, you know, to speak of mentors, I've been able to work with sort of what is the combination of a personal mindfulness practice mm-hmm. and some kind of interest in our systemic collective. And then there's this middle piece, which is what this book's all about, the interpersonal level. But what is the relationship between a personal practice and an interest in our uh, systemic and collective practices? And, you know, you've been a mentor in that um, uh, work. And um, our, our mutual friend, uh, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, you know, has been a real uh, Roshi mm-hmm. <laughs> Acharya um, in, that, in that arena as well. And, you know, so I think there's, you know, what's interesting about the current Um, situation is I think it's really easy to misuse Buddhist principles and principles of any non-dualistic Eastern tradition um, in a way that dovetails with like what I've come to feel is like the core um, propaganda model of our time. Like I don't think we live in a very Orwellian space. I think we live in a space of false equivalence Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. what is helpful and what is harmful there's no discernment of relative truth and and so it's very easy since buddhist and non-dualistic traditions talk so much about ultimate truth it's very easy just to say like you know and i think in charlottesville we saw the extreme absurdity of this when it's like all sides are causing problems and it's like that is a worldview that has zero interest in relative truth and it's so easy to dovetail that with a confused understanding of shunyata or emptiness or non-duality. And there does need to be an inclusiveness, and I think the inclusiveness is love and mm. showing up and connection and, and wanting to be connected. But I do think that people who teach these traditions, a lot of what we can offer are, because are, we do more of the personal work and the interpersonal work, mm-hmm. but a lot of what we can offer is really an understanding of how a person could cultivate a view that balances the relative truth. Like some actions are harmful. Some actions are helpful. Some people are struggling more than others. You know, it actually doesn't hurt um, a billionaire to realize that we need to take care of immigrants too. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. actually would help from a Buddhist interdependence standpoint, the better off immigrants are, the better off the billionaire is going to Mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. Might not be a billionaire anymore, but I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think it's this really interesting place where I find myself just really interested in the conversation of what is our view. And another term that's been really important to me was a, a phrase coined by a, a Buddhist psychotherapist named John Wellwood, mm-hmm. who coined the phrase spiritual bypassing, mm-hmm. which I dedicated a whole chapter in The Road Home to. And one of the ways he defines spiritual bypassing. Uh, I thought is so helpful for people who are studying meditation or Buddhism, which is that spiritual bypassing often involves privileging ultimate truth and neglecting relative truth. And so I think that's really important that those of us who, um, and also with transparency, you know, I've been um, uh, thinking about the people who are more active in terms of just, you know, getting people to vote, et cetera, and using their voice like yourself, uh, like Angel Kyoto Williams, like uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, like um, dear friend Michael Stone, who I wrote a, co-authored a letter with during Occupy Wall Street, who passed away this summer. Um, you know, th- I think it's important to have a perspective. I think just like we want to be transparent with our um, 
relationships as so-called spiritual teachers. Um, I think it's also important that um, students know that we have certain views on the world that mm-hmm. and how we are applying our spiritual principles to get to those views. And you know, I have a, I have a few Republican students. I actually think they respect me more for being willing to say what I think about certain things than if I was just like both sides have a perspective. And it's like, yeah, of course both sides. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like if you just distance yourself from the whole thing, ultimate truth is like it's just the easiest way out of yeah, anything. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yes, I know everyone has a perspective. I, I you know. So I just I just think I would urge people who are thinking of teaching meditation, teaching any of these traditions to be compassionate, to be open, to demonstrate and model practicing listening um, and to provide space for disagreement in whatever sanghas or communities you have, but to actually share your perspective on specific matters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually a better teaching um, method for everyone. That's um, very interesting. Really um, being honest, you know, yeah. just being truthful. Yeah. 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 I, as you know, I, I I have been very passionate and remain very passionate about people voting. And I've, I've never seen you angry except when you, <laughs> when you hear that people have the <laughs> option to vote. And it's the only time I've ever seen you on the verge of anger. Oh, shucks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it's interesting seeing the anger that's coming back because yeah. I, I don't tell people who to vote for, you know. You don't. Um, but... I I think just as you were saying I think the um the active expression of belief in one's innate dignity mm-hmm. a right to be happy mm-hmm. is the vote in the political sense and and for people not to care or to say in a sort of modern um version of everything's empty to say both sides are the same you right. know or and uh I, somebody said that to me this, you know, this last before this last election, presidential election, and I said, um, you know, you can say the difference between the two candidates is marginal, but a lot of people live on those margins. You right. know, it's like a raise in minimum wage makes a big difference if you're living yeah. on minimum wage. You know, it doesn't matter you maybe, but um, and they voted, but uh, you know, it was interesting seeing just the pushback against me, just saying everyone should vote, right? Um. And and so there's a lot of feeling, you know, mm. clearly. And I'm sure there's a lot of feeling, not just the trolls, you know, but from Estonia <laughs> or wherever they are, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, like I follow you on Facebook and I follow you on Twitter. I don't always read the comments. <laughs> I don't know if you do or not. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are heated. Yeah, but you, and some of them just change the subject, you know. That's that's another, the, the argumentation that's just like, okay, I'm not even going to, listen, I'm just going to take this in a different direction. Um, and a lot are very, you know, um, thoughtful. And and I think, you know, there's certain principles of uh, mindful listening, right speech, where you can tell if somebody's really wanting to engage a conversation. Mm-hmm. And if I ever act out of, um, you know, my own <laughs> karmic confusion to not see the possibility of listening to somebody's point of view when there is that opportunity i don't think social media is the best place for a conversation it's it's more a good place for announcements um but uh i do think it's worth trying and i don't think it's a problem for people who are meditation teachers yoga teachers to actually want to mix it up and say okay how are you applying the Mm -hmm. principles of your practice to the decision that you're making let's 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 get into it. How am I applying the principles mm-hmm, of my practice? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think you can call me on something, let's do it. You know, I think there's a there's a kind of um, uh, real willingness to mix it up that I'm interested in. Obviously, when it's not hurtful and and um, you know the the tricky part is that there's there are certain actors who use those methods of communication, like a lot of the the Buddhist principles on right speech and good listening um, actually work best in friendship because they assume a trusting intention on the part of both participants. They don't assume that one, you know, might work for a major advertiser or one might work for Vladimir Putin, you know, Um, and the other might just be trying to peddle his new uh, book, you know. (laughs) 
So there's there's assumptions that aren't always. Sometimes it's good to establish, you know, trust. So um, that's in the in the last section of the book. I think I posit. You, do you know who one of the biggest fans of the Princess Bride is? Um, Senator Ted Cruz is Hello. an amazing. <laughs> he does amazing impressions of characters from <laughs> the Princess Bride. So actually, Mandy Patinkin wrote a op-ed piece in Time when he found this out. Mandy Patinkin's a you know progressive New York meditator as well, and I was able to talk to Mandy Patinkin about my book and just saying like you know that he thought Ted Cruz missed the point of the of the movie. And but I was thinking like what would I do if Ted Cruz were a member of my family, you know? And I do have members of my family. I probably disagree with um, politically. I think most of us. Do. I may have met them at your <laughs> wedding. I'm not really sure. <laughs> we didn't talk politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, you know, we would probably talk about the Princess Bride. You know, it might. It's not always the best. I mean, if we never talked about politics, I feel like that wouldn't be really being a warrior in the mm-hmm, world mm-hmm. but it might be good to start saying like understanding somebody's narrative and that's mm-hmm. the thing about pop culture is it allows for a shared uh narrative even if a lot of the th- narratives that we have are not shared at all you know i do not share fox news's narrative <laughs> yeah i don't either but i'm gonna go watch the princess bride but yeah if you could there's a lot of fox news viewers who would love the princess bride and you can yeah. say hey this is about friendship this is about working together this is about not objectifying love this is about thinking of your family as bigger than you thought of your family mm-hmm. as. um that might just be my progressive or libtard interpretation i can see it now <laughs> you on the stage with ted cruz and be great. I would love wow. it. I would love it. I mean, his impression, he does an impression of Billy Crystal's Miracle Max. You can YouTube it. That's just <laughs> like really, really excellent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I know you need to go teach, actually. So is there anything else about your book uh, that you'd like to, to share before we... No, it was, It's. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think it was a good uh, balance of the personal, the theoretical the cultural, and it's really the kind of book I uh, like to write is, you know, a very heartfelt offering, you know, um, talked about some deep things, like the last time I saw my grandfather before he committed suicide, talked about some very playful things, like what's the most Buddhist line in The Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. So, um, What is the most Buddhist line? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A lot of people, I shared this with Dan Harris, a lot of people think the most Buddhist line is when Wesley says to Buttercup, Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. But I think that's almost Buddhist. It's sort of the dark side of Buddhism without the light. So I think the most Buddhist line in The Princess Bride, and I would love to hear what uh, other people think it is, is when Fezzik uh, says to his best friend, Inigo Montoya, um, as the Dread Pirate Roberts, is uh, the man in black, is coming to duel with um, uh, Inigo Montoya, and he's wearing... Um, his mask, Fezzik says to his friend, you be careful. People in masks cannot be trusted. Whoa. <laughs> that is so great. Well, I want to <laughs> encourage absolutely everybody uh, to, at this moment, pre-order the book um, because it's coming out September 12th. So, uh, And if you listen to this or are moved to, to buy it later, then order the book, mm-hmm. but certainly pre-order the book. And I think we should all send Ethan our view of what the most Buddhist line is <laughs> from the book. So I would follow him on Twitter. I'll have to tell him, have to get him to tell you what his uh, thing is and, and also Facebook. And um, you can pre-order a copy right now by visiting uh, com. It's E-T-H-A-N-N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N. Uh, and also, Ethan and I are teaching a weekend retreat together on love and relationships at the Shambhala Center in New York City, uh, September 29th to October 1st. So so come be with us. Thank you so much, Ethan. Why don't you just tell us how to find you other than your, your uh, website? Sure, just the website and then um, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of those. It's just Ethan Nickturn. One word is the handle, at Ethan Nickturn. So E-T-H-A-N-N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N, at that. That's great. That would be so wonderful because then 
Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, every time he and I have dinner together, you'll see a photo because <laughs> that's what we do. We ritualistically we take photos and <laughs> post it on Twitter. Somebody in a restaurant once came up to us and said, "Are you actually going to look at each other at all? <laughs> or are you just going to be on your phones all night?" So, but we don't stand. It's a nice thing for two meditation teachers to hear, right? <laughs> <laughs> Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.